from the Hill Country in Texas, broadcasting worldwide, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, 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 very pleasant good morning to you. Hi there, this is Patrick Timpone, and this is OneRadioNetwork.com. It's a beautiful Tuesday morning here in the Texas Hill Country, and uh, we have some good shows for you this morning. You'll meet Zoe Harkham. She's one of the... uh, one of the best researchers around the world. She has quite a reputation for being an incredible researcher in the world of health and nutrition. And then later on, around noon or so, maybe even earlier, we'll see, we will play you an interview we did yesterday with Dr. Mark Bailey. Dr. Mark Bailey, he's the husband of Samantha Bailey, who's been on our show. He's in New Zealand, and he is he's out of control looking into... Um, that there is no virus. Uh, he can prove it. He could take it to court if they'll let him in. They won't let him in because they they won't let him in. Um, 500 pages is last thing, and there is no virus. No proof that there will, a virus has ever existed. And he's one of the ones out there like Lanka, Cowan, Kaufman, Vollmer, Sell, Lando, Mike Stone, the people we've talked to. And so we can only conclude just my opinion, but after talking to all these people, that this entire thing has been a um, psychological operation, and they did a pretty good job. So we're going to talk to him. We recorded it yesterday because about a 13-hour difference, time difference, uh, in New Zealand, uh, so he'll be on. It's a pre-recorded show, but it was great. Really good stuff, so stick around. Now, first up, if you'd like to join the show, 888-663-6386, email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. A researcher, an author, and blogger, Zoe Harkham. She's a public speaker in the field of diet and health. Her particular areas of interest, expertise, are public health dietary guidelines, especially fat. Really? Fat? Go figure. A BA and MA in Cambridge University, economics and math. She was the second woman to be voted student president in 630 years. Wow. 2016, she was awarded a Ph.D. in public health nutrition. Her thesis title, get this, an examination of the randomized controlled trial and epidemiological evidence for the introduction of dietary fat recommendations in 77 and 83, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And I think we'll talk about that, which she came up with this. Remember the 77 dietary fat thing? She was the first person to examine the evidence base for the dietary fat guidelines at the time of their nutrition in our induction, rather, in 77, discovering that not only was the randomized controlled trial evidence non-supportive of the introduction-induced guidelines, but that fewer than 2,500 sick men have been studied in the process. She talks about and believes that physical, psychological reasons for food cravings, the question that's baffled her for since she's been a teenager, and um, everybody wants to be slim, so why do they eat too much food? So we, we have a lot to talk about with Zoe Harkham, and she's in uh, Wales, where it's uh, getting close to dinner time. Miss Harkham, <laughs> uh, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's very kind. Yeah, yeah. So you did a whole definitive study to prove that when they came out in 77, that fat was bad for us at that just wasn't so? 
That was pretty much it. Um, my fascination had been obesity, and I was I was trying to understand why obesity took off. And if you look at the chart in America, it sort of goes like that, and then shoots up like an airplane um, around sort of seventy six to eighty. The same happened in the UK. So I was trying to understand obesity and what happened around that time. We introduced new dietary guidelines. You had the Senator McGovern Committee in seventy seven, and then the dietary guidelines were introduced. In in 1980 and then of course they're reformed um, every five years 85 90 and so on um, but they pretty much stayed the same which is don't eat fat it's going to kill you and do eat carbs because they're marvelous um, and of course that lends itself very well to the to the fake food industry um, so I, I wanted to understand those dietary guidelines so I went into the research you should always go into research with a research question but not knowing what you're going to find and I guess if someone had pulled me to one side and said what do you expect to find I'd have said I'm, I'm expecting to find some evidence that fat is bad and that it causes heart disease and maybe all cause mortality but I just don't know how strong the evidence is going to be and will it be a question of um, there is some benefit for heart disease but it's actually probably implicated in obesity so on balance that there are some problems but then when I went in to look at the evidence I was just astonished because there just was none um, so the first part of the PhD was to go back to say if I'd have been on the dietary guidelines committee in 1980 around 1977-1980 what randomized control trials were available and if we put them all together in the technique that's called meta-analysis that's just pooling all the evidence together that's the best um, evidence that you can come up with what would that tell us and I did that and the answer was there's no evidence whatsoever makes no difference whatsoever um, any dietary fat intervention, whether you're reducing fat, whether you're switching out saturated fat, switching in polyunsaturated fat, none of the dietary fat interventions made any difference whatsoever. Um, pull them all together, they make no difference either, and that's for all cause mortality or heart disease. So there was just no evidence. Wow. Um, so even, even these PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are demonized in the natural food world, yeah. Um, are, you, are you suggesting that they are not bad for us or they just didn't contribute to obesity? Well, that's interesting because my research question was, is there any evidence that um, chain, reducing dietary fat or replacing saturated fat with unsaturated fat are either of those good? in terms mm. of all-cause mortality and in terms of heart disease? And the answer to that question was no. Mm. But you've asked a very important question because there were only six studies available at the time. And as you said in your introduction, they had only studied men and they'd only studied men who'd already had a heart incident. So they actually weren't applicable to the general population anyway, no matter what they found. They weren't applicable to women. They weren't applicable to anyone who was healthy. Um, so they, they didn't find all of that. But a couple of them did find that when they swapped out saturated fat and swapped in polyunsaturated fat there were actually more incidents in the intervention group um, now in a couple of cases I'm you know re reaching back now six years to the detail that I had at the time of the Viva um, but the Woodhill study from Australia um, and I think one of the, the Minnesota coronary survey as well um, actually found that it was not a good idea to be swapping out the um, saturated. saturated fat yeah and putting in place polyunsaturated fat and when you say incidents to Ms. Arkham um, what kind of things were found with the PUFAs 
Can you just... Can yeah, that, that you'd get more incidents. Um, what what does that mean, incidents? Heart? Yeah, so more heart incidents. And, and I was looking particularly at mortality, okay. um, which is, again, the highest level of evidence. There's, there's no point looking at, um, say, if you have fewer heart attacks, but you have more cancer or diabetes or something, you haven't actually done anything worthwhile. So mortality is the gold standard. Um, so I looked at all-cause mortality and then death from coronary heart disease so were people dying more of anything and were they dying more of heart disease um, and the the dietary fat interventions made no positive difference and there were a couple of studies where they suggested that there was cause for concern mm -hmm. and in in my um, sort of you know the summary chapter in the PhD when you do the discussion and you actually go through the final sentences in some of these papers um, some of them saying you know we found no evidence of benefit and quite likely evidence of harm um, some of them use the word caution um, all of that was just ignored and just trampled all over um, and, and that was just part one of, of my PhD I then went to look at Okay, did the epidemiological evidence at the time, did the study of populations at the time suggest that we should be cutting back on fat? And the answer was no. Mm. Um, and then I said, okay, that was 1980. I'm not doing this in 1980. I'm doing this PhD in 2013, 14 and 15. Um, if we look at the evidence now, does this say that we should have introduced those guidelines? And it doesn't. So we have no more evidence 40 years on that we should have introduced those guidelines than we did 40 years ago. They are not evidence-based, like so much in nutrition. So, um, so most countries or many countries around the world are continuing with their food pyramid just kind of opposite pretty much of what the truth is, in your opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Because people, one, one of the things that, I, I've done a few television programs on this, and one, and one of the things that I find really gets people is if, if you imagine a pie, and your listeners will know that there are basically only three things that we eat, and we call them macronutrients, big mm -hmm. nutrients, and they're protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Right. And not everybody knows that protein tends to be pretty fixed in any natural diet, and it tends to be around 15%. And that's the same even if you've got a vegetarian diet, might be higher if, if there's a carnivore diet, but in a lot of natural diets, protein tends to be about 15%. So the rest of the 100% is made up of fat and carbohydrate. So the minute you introduce a requirement that you shouldn't have more than 30% of your calories in the form of fat, you have immediately set a requirement that you will have a minimum of 55% of your calories in the form of carbohydrate. Ah, so I yeah. The dietary fat restrictions drove this high carbohydrate diet that we have had since the introduction of those restrictions. And of course, during that time, um, and some people might say this is a coincidence, got nothing to do with what happened, um, but it, obesity exploded, type 2 diabetes exploded. Um, heart disease hasn't done very well. Cancer hasn't done very well. Mm, yeah. um, they all just keep really going difficult. up, right? All these these metrics yeah. keep going up. Yeah. They just do. Yeah. Uh, was this study, the 77 fat one, so was it different from the Framingham where they went in and did the whole thing with cholesterol? 
Is that a different study? Yeah, so, yeah, that, that came into my PhD. That was one of the, the ah. studies that I looked at. So that that is a population study. So the randomized controlled trials would be things like the Rose Corn Oil trial that was conducted in London. And it was only conducted on, you know, a couple of hundred um, sick men, but it was an intervention trial. So you randomly assign half the men to one part of the study and half the men to the other part of the study, or that one was actually a three-way but the men were assigned to different arms and then you give them an intervention saying right you guys carry on as normal you guys have corn oil as your major flat fat you guys have olive oil as your major fat that's the intervention study that's the randomized controlled trial so the Framingham was um, one of the cl classic population studies when they go into a particular area um, and in this case it was the town of Framingham and they invited everybody to take part in the study. A lot of people did um, because it's interesting, you, you feel really special, you get loads of blood work done, you get measured, you get doctor mm -hmm. attention, you know, th there's a benefit to you. Um, so most people said, yeah, I'm happy to do this. So you just take all the details from people in the population age, um, sex, uh, you smoker, drinker, what's your typical diet? And then you follow that population over the next 20, 30, 40 years to say, what do they go on to develop? And then it's, it's, it's what can then establish associations. So it's the kind of study where you can look at it and say, wow, look at that, the, the smokers go on to develop lung cancer at 10 times the rate of the non-smokers. So then what you're supposed to do is to say, that's now a hypothesis, let's go and test that hmm. in one of those intervention trials. Um, but of course, something like smoking and, and cancer, the, the association is so high, you don't test it because that would be unethical. Um, but you know, if you observe, you know, all these crazy things they come out with, oh, whole grains will reduce your risk of dying by 10% or something. They're supposed to take that and then go and test it in an intervention trial. But of course they don't because they know the result will be, it's, it's complete nonsense, nothing, there's going to be no difference um, because whole grains are not healthy. Liver is healthy and oily fish is healthy and eggs are healthy. Um, whole grains are just not all that. So it's not going <laughs> to, it's not going to make any difference. So are many studies done with um, just surveys of people and they're supposed to remember what they've eaten the last month and they do this? And what, <laughs> yeah. some, did somebody tell us that that's what this massive China study was pretty much a survey kind of thing where they were selling yeah. the idea that vegetarians you'd live longer if you're a vegetarian yeah yeah and and I mean that's one of the first flaws of what we call these epidemiological studies or they're also called population studies which population is a, 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 studies. yeah an, an easier word I think so um, first flaw is that they ask people to fill in this questionnaire and they ask in some cases they ask them to recall on average what did you eat over the past year Oh, um, good. And of course, <laughs> I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> many of us eat seasonally. So, so, you know, if somebody's saying to me, what did you eat last year? It's kind of like, well, is that in the summer when I would eat berries? Or is it in the autumn when I would eat apples? Or is it in the winter when I probably wouldn't eat either of those? Um, you know, I might be having more porridge in the winter because it's warming. Um, and how do I remember anyway? And if you're telling me one portion of meat and they're trying to tell me that's about 100 grams, do I really know what 100 grams is? Um, I mean, they're just so unreliable and that's just the first flaw. Um, and then there's other flaws, like they try to claim 
that A causes B, but you can't say that from population studies. You can just say that A and B are associated in some way. Um, they look at relative risks, so they say, oh, there's a 10% risk difference. And then I try to explain to people, you know, you might have one in 10,000 risk of dying, or you might have 1.1 in 10,000 risk. Do you care? Like you can't even tell the difference between 1.1 and 1 out of 10,000. But that is a 10% difference. So if somebody said to you, that's your 10% difference, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't care. Hmm. Um, and with all of this research, I can't imagine, I mean, this is what you do all the time. Is it even important or do you care who funded these studies? Yes. Yeah. It's some. Um, I can keep you being asked. Can you find out, Miss Harcum? Can you find out? Yeah. No, you can. Yeah. I mean, please call me Zoe. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's one of the first things I look at. So I've got. I, I keep a running list of possible Monday notes. I do. You know, you're very kindly one of my supporters. I do a note every Monday, and every he, Monday. I don't even have to go looking for them. People send them in, and they say, "Oh, here's this latest study on red meat causes cancer. Can you take it apart?" Um, and one of the things I've got on my list is that I want to explain how I approach taking down a study um but it's just really difficult it's like you've been a radio host for for years you know it'd be like you trying to explain to people how how to be a great radio host it's just it's what you do um i kind of look at a paper and i'm a maths nerd and it's just kind of it's what i do but one of the first things i go to look at is who funded it so hmm. if i'm seeing a study saying oh you should eat loads of fiber and whole grains are fantastic i'll go to the end and it might say funded by kellogg's or general mills or nabisco or something and then i know it's industry funded of course it's going to come out in favor of cereals um but they've got a lot more subtle about doing that so they don't make it as easy to see the conflicts now so what you tend to have to do is to go to the authors and the authors will often declare no conflicts um, and then you do a search on them and you'll find out in a bio that they're vegan or they've had prior funding or you just google their name and Kellogg's or their name and General Mills and sure enough something will come up or a statin paper and Pfizer and they'll come up um, but they've made it much more difficult to find the conflicts because they don't want you making that connection that they're conflicted and that's why they're saying what they're saying. Sure, sure, sure. So overall, do you think that uh, after all these years that one of the biggest um, misnomers are that meat and fat are bad for you? Is that probably the yeah. top line? Because that's yeah, the one that gets sold all the time and now even more, it seems that there are forces telling people even more this war on meat i don't know if you see it over there but here in yeah. this country i mean it's it's really strong i mean yeah really it's strong. bad and it's getting worse mm. and it's i'd call it relentless at the moment wow. um there's hardly a day goes by when there isn't an article in the paper saying you should be having plant burgers here's a journalist trying a plant burger Bill Gates, of course, is telling us to have plant burgers. He's that's conflict. He's invested in Beyond Burger, sure. Impossible Burger, or whatever it is. Um, he's also buying up farmland. Um, I know somebody who used to work for him very closely, and apparently he's very fond of steak. So um, <laughs> he's he's not about to start eating bugs or plant burgers anytime soon. That's what he wants us useless eaters. I think we're called. Um, that's what he wants us uh, us eating. Um, but the evidence just isn't there. I mean, you just go to the evidence 
um, you know, I'll say at conferences, pick a, pick a food. If you want to win a, a nutrient competition, let anybody pick another food and you pick liver and you can't lose. You just can't lose. You know, if really? anyone can find, it's, it's yeah, that you, it's that good. It's that good. It is that good. Um, oh. There just isn't. So, you know, you look, you've got your complete protein because it's an animal food. You've got essential fats. And because it's an animal food, you've got them in the form that the body wants them. Um, the iron that comes in liver, of course, is heme iron, the most absorbable kind. Um, but then you look at the vitamins and you look at the minerals that are in liver. And for such a, a lean product and you know if you want to do it by grams it's going to win if you want to do it by calories it's going to win it, it's mm. just going to win um and yet they're just all the time trying to put us off meat and saying oh cereal much better for you base your meals on starchy foods it's almost like they want us sick um i can't yeah. come to any other conclusion yeah it feels like that so what's up with um what's up with starches potatoes baked potatoes <laughs> with butter i mean come on What's not to like with that, right? Lots of butter. Are these things good for us to eat, a baked potato with butter or potatoes in general? Okay, there's a lot to, to go for in that one. So yeah. um, if somebody says to me, what's your dietary advice? My number one principle is eat real food. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, what's real food? You know, oranges grow on trees, cartons of orange juice don't. Fish right. swim in the sea, breaded fish sticks don't. You know, come on, it's it's easy to work out what a real food is. So to that extent, butter is a real food and baked potato is a real food. Um, if you look at both of those nutritionally, neither of them is all that. Um, so again, if you, if you wanted to do a profile of, you know, the complete protein, the essential fats, vitamins and minerals, neither of them are going to do very well relative to liver, oily fish, red meat, um, eggs. Uh, they're just not. Um, they're just not going to you know, compare as far as getting all the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, butter, for example, has got vitamins A and D. Um, but not much else. It hasn't got the fat-soluble vitamins E and K. It doesn't have any other vitamins. It's really not that good for um, minerals. Um, it's got virtually no protein because it's mostly fat. And then you go over to the baked potato, which is mostly carbohydrate, which of course is the one macronutrient that we don't actually need. I'm, I'm not a carnivore. I'm not keto. I'm right. not even particularly low carb because um, I don't need to be. I'm very slim. Um, but for a lot of people, carbohydrates are a problem. And a lot of people find if they're struggling with their weight or they're struggling with type 2 diabetes, carbohydrates are the, the food group that they just, the macronutrient right, right. that they, they, they need to drop. So I hear what you're saying. I kind of intuned that um, with people that have a problem with their weight, obviously carbs are not not, not the way to go. But I guess from a global viewpoint with all of this carnivore stuff coming out, it seems like it's emerging everywhere now. I don't know, maybe I just see it like, because I'm interested in it. Um, but is there any evidence that eating these foods that the pure carnivore guys, and you've seen them out there in girls, and a lot of them, mm. say that they're not good for you? Is there any evidence to suggest that, well, maybe baked potato is not as good as liver, but it's not going to hurt me. Is there any evidence to suggest that it's going to mess up your mic, mess up things in your body? Starches. Um, yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think uh, a lot of people can get away with those foods. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're right. If you're saying, you know, they're not as nutritious as liver, but you don't want liver every day. And yeah. I like 
a baked potato. I mean, you know, crispy baked potato, absolutely fabulous. Um, so I would say most people can eat that no problem. Most people will be able to cope with it, particularly the younger you are, the more likely you are to be able to cope with it. And if you're generally metabolically healthy, um, it's absolutely not a problem. But if you're eating what the government wants us to eat, which is somewhere around 350 to 400 grams of carbohydrate on a daily basis, it's not going to be long before your body says, I've had too much carb mm. too often. I'm sorry. I'm just not metabolizing it anymore. And that's when you start heading into prediabetes, diabetes. And that's when a, a baked potato, which is so high on the glycine index is really not going to be good for you um, and then there are people like Dr George Reed, Dr Sean Baker mm -hmm. um, and other people who find that they just don't get on well with plants Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson yeah. um, there are some people for whom things like oxalates or um, phytosterols or whatever any other things going on in, in the plant world they don't get on with um, I don't think that kind of person is super common, but if you are one of those people, you will find your health transformed if you just stay away from Stay away from them. Yeah. From plants, yeah. yeah. Dr. Baker is going to be on next week. It's great you mentioned oh, okay. him. He's a good one. So, yeah. so there could be something to this carnivore meme that's out there that say the plants have these oxalates and chemicals and these carbs. There could be some species for some reason, some of us, that just don't need those or don't do well with them. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe that. The final thing that I'd say about the baked potato and the, um, the butter is one of the things that I've observed looking very closely at food and what nutrients we need and where you find those nutrients is I, I found a really interesting observation, which is that real food doesn't put fat and carbohydrate in the same foods together. The exceptions are nuts and seeds. So if you think of nuts, they're pretty high in fat and they're pretty high in carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. They're also pretty high in protein. So they're, they're almost this complete macronutrient food. But aside from that, nature tends to provide carb proteins, which are things that vegans eat. They're your grains and your vegetables and your fruits and your beans and pulses or fat proteins, which are things that vegans don't eat, which is your meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. And so you don't have this sort of fat carb combo going on in the real world. And humans find it quite irresistible. So the fake food companies have realized if we had a baked potato on its own, we would have a limit of how much we could eat. And if we had butter on its own, we would have a limit of how much we could eat. But to put the two together and we can eat a lot more. So they put fat and carb in ice cream, cookies, muffins, um, chips of fats and carbs as well. So they, they do all of that basically to, to make it very Moorish. Hmm. Zoe Harkham is with us. Patrick Timpone, OneRadioNetwork.com. Wow. It's, it's, I mean... I've been looking at this for like 30, 40 years, and I can't tell you, when I really try to think about all this stuff that we've learned and unlearned, it makes your head explode. You know, it's just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? You know? Oh, man, oh, man. Uh, do you think that um, a lot of the things that people are looking at with blood tests and LDLs and HDLs and all that stuff, I know you have a blog about that out now, that these are reasonable to look at just in general? Or I guess what I'm wondering is if 
if blood tests are are just um, a, a moment in time and maybe they don't mean as much as we think they mean. You do blood tests a lot more than we do over in the UK. So it seems to be um, with your insurance and with um, medical stuff that you need to have blood tests. So you, I often have people email me from the US saying, you know, I've had this blood test. Da, 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 da. And my first question is, why did you have the blood test? And they say, oh, it's a routine medical or my insurance company wants me to do that. We just don't do that in the UK because we have this public healthcare system. So the only time you would go in and get a blood test would be if you think there's something wrong with you. Oh. Um, so you might go into the doctor and say, oh, I'm tired all the time. Um, and if you say I'm tired all the time and I've noticed blood in my urine or in my stools or something, they will do a blood test really quickly um, because, of course, they're suspecting bowel cancer or cervical cancer or wound cancer or something like that. Um, but unless you walk into the GP and say, I'm feeling a bit under the weather, they're probably not going to do anything. Um, now, there are certain things that are measured in the UK that the um, we, we call them general practitioners, you call them MDs, um, so that your family doctor gets some money from the government for testing. So um, if I do walk in for any reason and I try not to go anywhere near doctors, they will try to take my blood pressure because they get money for measuring all their patients' blood pressures. They'll try to give me a finger prick to take a cholesterol test. Um, what else might they try? They might try to take a urine test to, to test for diabetes because they get money from the government as a um, sort of incentive to get them testing for those kind of things. But then, of course, the minute they do that, they start then treating people for things. So, oh, you're pre-diabetic, whereas, you know, that might have just been a, a rogue test or, oh, your cholesterol's a bit high and we know that your cholesterol can change from one day to the next. Was it a fasted, you know, did you go into the doctor's surgery in the morning? Had you just had breakfast? Had you missed breakfast? Are you running late? Are you stressed? So many things that can impact a blood test. And then they, um, they want to make decisions on the basis of it. So I'm generally one for saying, if you're feeling well, don't go near a doctor and don't test things <laughs> for the sake of it, because you'll then start treating stuff for the sake of it. And that's not a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Over all these years, have you come up with um, some foods in general that you believe promote this thing called cancer, whatever it is? Now that's interesting, actually, because when I've looked in the Monday notes, when people have sent me in a paper that, for example, has, has looked at the stuff that the, um, the NOVA classification, so the classification of processed foods, and they came up with these four stages where um, one stage is the closest that you can get to a real kind of food, and then at the other end of the scale, you've got what we would definitely call a processed food. Um, and they try to then look at the association of those foods with mm -hmm. um, mortality, with cancer, with heart disease and so on. And I've always been surprised that it's not been higher. Hmm. Um, so they do sometimes find an association, but it might be back to that relative risk again. It might be a 10 percent. Um, difference if you've got a really high processed food diet versus a really um, healthy whole food diet. Um, so I, I've been surprised. I would have thought that processed food would have been a lot more harmful um, than it is. Maybe it is and we just don't have the studies that have amassed the evidence as yet. Intuitively, 
it seems right to say that if you're drinking um, sugar laden, phenylalanine laden diet drinks and eating Twinkies with 500 ingredients in or whatever, it makes sense to think you're going to get some bad health outcomes um, sooner than the person who's not eating those things. Um, but we don't have overwhelming evidence just yet that it's going to be killing you 10 years early or, or the kind of thing that might stop people doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, stay right there, okay? And we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Zoe, Zoe Harkum, Patrick Tempone, OneRadioNetwork.com. Let me see if I get the right screen up here. Fun stuff, huh? If you have a question for her, you can call 888-663-6386. Email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. OneRadioNetwork.com. This is a fun thing that we like. It's from Daniel Vitalis, and it is colostrum. It's a wonderful product, and you might want to try it sometime. Listen. For my first meal of the day, I like to make a blended drink, and I'm always basing my blended drinks around colostrum. Colostrum adds so much creamy flavor and texture that if you don't have it, smoothies start to seem a little bit watery to me. Now, I'm going to be combining it with a bunch of other ingredients, but it really is the all-star. Colostrum has so many health benefits. Probably it's best known for its effects on the immune system. There's actually an article in PubMed showing colostrum to be three times more effective against flu and flu symptoms than flu vaccines are, even in high-risk patients. It's incredible for fighting flu and other viral type infections. It's also really good for building lean muscle mass. In fact, it contains all 89 of the known mammalian growth factors. It's also very good for the gut lining. So people who suffer from things like Crohn's, IBS, uh, leaky gut syndrome, a lot of those folks are using colostrum in the regenerative process to heal and restore their gut lining. And one of the things I love about it is that it's a complete food. So colostrum contains everything a mammal needs to thrive. It contains all of the essential amino acids. It contains all of the essential lipids or fats. It contains all of the essential glyconutrients. Those are essential sugars that we need for our immune function. So it's got all of that and all those growth factors, which means this is really a complete food for human beings or for any other mammals. Tastes great. It's got the fuel I need to get through the day, and it's got all those added health benefits thanks to the colostrum too. It's a great product and a great company with Daniel Vitalis, and uh, they have the colostrum. They also have the uh, Shaga and Rishi, which is on promotion sale um, right now for the next. Um, let's see, Shaga Rishi twenty percent off. Wow, and that's a good good deal. Uh, great products. They're using just fruited bodies with the Shaga and the Rishi. So it's the real deal, all in Myron glass. The code is ADAPT NOW. ADAPT NOW, Shaga and Rishi on sale at Thrival on OneRadioNetwork.com. One of our favorite things to do every day is to have a sauna, and we have the relaxed Far Infrared Sauna. We think one of the best ones out there for the money, where you don't have to you know, break out a bathroom wall or anything and hire a contractor. You can see it's a portable unit and your head is sticking out there so you don't get a hot head. We have enough hot heads around and uh, it's a great price. 1295 delivered in continental U.S. We ship them all over the world. If you'd like to get one, uh, they're very low EMFs. We've checked them. Uh, they're made at a medical university in Taiwan. 
it's a it's a great company and a good product and you'll like it it's very quiet comfortable it's a good one so it's uh the relax far infrared sauna and um it's it, it, the only way you can get it is to email me patrick one radio network.com we're going to go back to zoe harkham and we're going to ask her about sugar sugar and more sugar right after this previously with dr rulin chu about her product called pearlseum so, so let's talk about the teeth first explain to me what's going on because there's something magical when you dip your little toothbrush in water why do they look so sparkly and just i don't know something very energetically about the the look of them yeah it's uh, very very magical so like a group of scientists in uh, france discovered that when you put the pearl next to the bones or uh, skins or other connective tissues and they find it stimulates new growth of the bones and skins and connective tissues and also uh, to make existing bones and the skins uh, more healthy and stronger so brush your teeth with the pearl then your teeth will make your existing teeth stronger and also it will fitting up you know teeth with the porcium and the pearl powder will stimulate the new bone growth and also make the existing teeth very strong it's really a great product you'll love it take it internally or on your teeth and you can click an order see the ad right there pearl seam the nice green container pearl seam on one radio network.com it really is and we don't recommend at all taking any kind of calcium things from rocks it'll end up in your arteries most likely not a good thing but this is a once living source pearls and uh, uh, so if you're going to do you want to get a little extra calcium if you don't want to drink milk or something you can take this internally but brush your teeth with it I think you'll find it really a fun thing to do. And we like fun things to do. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. We're talking with Zoe Harkham, and she has, uh, it's ZoeHarkham.com. Is that right? That's your website, ZoeHarkham.com? That's correct, yeah. And you can sign up like I did, and I get a little thing in email. Is it once a, uh, once a week you send that out? It's yeah, fun. Monday night. Yeah, and you got all this geeky stuff, man. I don't even can't. Even, holy cow! It's like, wow. Um, so let's talk about sugar, 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 sugar. Is there a big difference between eating um, sugar from a fruit regarding our health and well-being, or having CNA sugar, pure cane sugar from Hawaii? I don't think so. Um, I don't, don't so. um, wow. no, I, I don't see how the body can tell the difference. Wow. Um, so sucrose is one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose. And the body doesn't know where it came from. So if you eat an apple, all fruit has different amounts of fructose and glucose. Um, so I think from memory, um, this is correct. Actually, yeah, an apple has slightly more fructose than glucose and a banana has slightly more glucose than fructose. Mm. Um, but they're essentially delivering you molecules of glucose and fructose, which is what sucrose is doing. And I remember hearing a, a program on Radio 4 where a biochemist was being asked this question. And it was a program about sugar and it featured Dr. Robert Lustig, because of course he's been very big on sugar. Mm-hmm. And the biochemist was asked this question by the researcher, and you could almost hear the contempt in the biochemist's voice when he was sort of saying, and how would the body know? 
that's a stupid question. You know, shukos is shukos kind of thing. So um, that's that's my belief as well. Now with the apple, you get some things that you don't get with the cane sugar from the sugar bowl, but not that much. And this is what really drives me nuts about this whole five a day thing, where there's this big emphasis. I mean, five a day is a complete fairy story. There's no evidence behind five a day. What's five a um, day? Sorry, I don't know that one. So, um, yeah, th th I mean, it is actually a global campaign. So, you know, it's great you don't know it because it, it maybe it's bigger in the UK than it is in the US, but it's definitely known in about 30 countries worldwide. And it's this idea, it's been there since about 1991. It's this idea that everybody should be trying to have five fruits and vegetables five portions every single day wow um so you know for some people they don't you know children quite often don't like vegetables so they want five sweet things um and it's not great giving children five sweet things that might be raisins it might be grapes it might be um very sweet fruits or something so that that's really not great and it's just five portions of sugar um to all intents and purposes now an apple does come with um a tiny little bit of protein nothing of any consequence it comes with a few vitamins and minerals but far fewer than most people realize um fruit just has this halo effect people think oh fruit is so healthy make sure my little child is eating fruit and i'm just thinking why you know if you really want to get something nutritious into your child if you're really concerned about that then look at red meat and look at offal and look at oily fish and look at eggs and look at full fat dairy products and maybe a few vegetables and some nuts but those are the nutritious foods why are you worried about fruit it's not going to make much difference wow so what does sugar do when it goes in the body um i, I guess it depends on the, the terrain of the person eating it and then how much like the old dose thing how much you're putting in but in general does sugar do something in the body that we don't like? Even a yeah. little bit of it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Even a little yeah, bit of so, it. Yeah, so, um, yeah. I mean, this is the incredible statistic. I remember when I first heard this. Um, so in our entire bloodstreams right now, we have about four grams of sugar, four grams of glucose, which is even one if we don't, teaspoon. Even if we don't eat any? We yeah, that, that's, that's the level that the body wants to maintain at all times. Hmm. So it wants to keep us in this incredibly narrow band four of gram. about four grams of, of glucose at any one time. So the minute we eat something like an apple, which might have, I don't know, a big apple might have 15 grams of glucose, we've shot right out of that normal range of glucose. So the body then calls upon insulin to try to take that glucose out of the bloodstream and store it elsewhere as wow. glycogen, which is our storage form of glucose. And, and the idea is that the body will then get you back to that four grams of glucose. Because if you've got a, a level of, let's say six grams of glucose, you're diabetic. You know, you're, you're in that diabetic territory. So that's all the glucose that we want in our bloodstream at any one time. So the mm. government telling us to have 350 to 400 grams of carbohydrate Whoa. on a daily basis. Um, now that carbohydrate entirely be glucose. You know, one of the ways to look at it is if you take that simple piece of sugar, so let's say you have one teaspoon of sugar and half of the teaspoon is going to be fructose and half of the teaspoon is going to be glucose. So the glucose goes into the bloodstream where it then creates havoc and the body's got to engage insulin to get it out of the bloodstream and fructose goes straight to the liver. 
So when people say to me, oh, which is the better sugar, glucose or fructose? I say, do you want non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or do you want type 2 diabetes? <laughs> because your fructose is going to give you NAFLD over time and your glucose is going to give you type 2 diabetes over time. So which do you want? And if you just keep eating sucrose, you'll just get both of those going along at the same time. So, uh, wow. Um so then the insulin that causes an issue for the heart right we know that well the insulin can when we have too much insulin then um it can then irritate and inflame the arteries right and then the whole cholesterol thing starts is that that's my understanding is that accurate um i think I mean, there are more sort of steps to it than that i think the the, the main issue that comes from um, trying to take in too much glucose, too many carbohydrates, too much too often, and we have this insulin response the whole time because the body has to get the glucose out of the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. What then happens is you get something that we're now calling hyperinsulinemia. So the, the body is just in a, a, a constantly high insulin state because that's the other thing that dietitians say, oh, have cereal and fruit for breakfast and fruit juice and then have a snack mid-morning, which is going to be a muffin or a you know low-fat cookie or a piece of fruit and then have a sandwich or some more carbohydrate at lunchtime and then have a snack in the afternoon and then have a more carbohydrate for dinner and then have a before you go to bed so the body is just constantly having to get the glucose out of the bloodstream because we never evolved to cope with that much glucose and you're in this constantly high insulin state and that's one part of the problem but the other part of the problem is that it's like throwing a sack of potatoes on a weighing machine that's supposed to weigh a, a, a hair um, you know it, it is just smashing a, a, an incredibly delicate mechanism far too often so your body's just going to get to the point where it's oh, I'm, I'm, I'm out I'm done you know I just can't do this whole take the glucose out respond with insulin get the right amount uh, I just can't do that so many times a day so often you know you're now barely 40 and you're type 2 diabetic so it's the hyperinsulinemia but then there are people who study this far more than I have done um, and one of the people who's brilliant in this field is Dr Isabella Cooper and they will then look at what are the um, bodily consequences of hyperinsulinemia and then you're getting into things like damage, inflammation, um, a state that can be very unhealthy in terms of the non-communicable diseases but I, I wouldn't want to say it's as direct as sort of too many carbohydrates too much insulin and then you're going to get heart disease kind of thing sure. um, and I don't yeah. I don't think cholesterol has got much to do with any of that I mean I, yeah, it's a repair is, it's a repair mechanism right exactly exactly it's trying, yeah, to, so, it's trying to smooth over the the inflammation totally. That's yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it, seen in that context, definitely. You get sick and then your body is going to make more cholesterol because, as you say, it's our main repair tool in the body. I, I, I thought you were framing it as in it's it's a bad thing. It's like, oh, no, it's a yeah. bad thing. No. No. <laughs> it's a bad thing that it's got to make it, but it's a good thing that it is making it because it's so, going to fix you as much so as it that's can. Why these, that's why these statins are so dangerous, right? Because they're bringing the people's cholesterol level down to 130 and 140 and then they can't make testosterone and then they give them a pill for 
you know, for their sexual problems because they don't have enough testosterone. It's crazy what's going on. Yeah, or they get gut problems and then they take a pill because they've got um, acidic stomach and acid reflux and then they get muscle aches so they take a painkiller because they're getting muscle aches and then they get more stomach damage from the painkiller so they take more. I mean, we're in this sort of cycle Mm. of medicating people and the the thing, Mm. yeah, I, I'm not a fan of statins at all. I, I will never take one. Um, and I'm disappointed that there's so much pressure put on people to take one because we have decreed that cholesterol is bad rather than that cholesterol is utterly life vital and we die without it. We just we need a, a new paradigm on cholesterol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, let's go to this idea of... Um, uh, well, well, let's do dairy. You know, let's do dairy in general. What have you found over the years of benefits of uh, raw goat's milk or raw cow's milk or, you know, pasteurized organic milk from the store? Do we know anything about their benefits or their issues possibly with this food? I don't know that I'm the best to answer that one, actually. I mean, I, I would defer to people like Tom Cowan, the Western Price right. Foundation. I'm a huge fan of dairy, personally. It's probably where I get most of my calories. Oh. The, the, the major part of my calories on any daily basis is with um, whole milk, um, Greek yogurt, high-fat dairy, um, cheese. Um, I'm just a real fan of a dairy. I like it. I like the taste. I find it very convenient for. And you do well with it. Um, huh? Yeah, yeah I, I do. I don't have problems with it. I know people who who do have problems with it and find they get quite nasally or they feel a little bit bunged up or they find that they crave it. Um, you know, I, I try to sort of work with people who are trying to lose weight. And there are some people who seem to be so carbohydrate sensitive that even the carbohydrate in dairy, because it's somewhere up to 10%, depending on how fluid it is, um, they, they find even that they crave. So they're doing well on meat and fish and eggs and vegetables um, and salad and then they introduce Greek yogurt and they're eating it by the you know the the pound um, you know the 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 tub and and they just then have to stop because they they can't control it I'm not one of those people I love it I think it's super healthy it's got great nutrients in it it's great for gut flora Um, you don't need to be having fiber for gut flora Um, you know you just need to be having blue cheese and maybe kefir um, raw milk, I'm sure, yeah. is better than pasteurized, but I, I haven't studied it, so I, I defer to Western Price. This whole fiber thing has come out a lot with this uh, awareness more and more animal-based diet, carnivore, keto, and many of these folks are just really saying that we don't need all this fiber. Uh, do you have thoughts on that or research Yeah, on we, that? Don't. we don't. We don't. No, I mean, it's a, it's a nutritional fact. It's, this is not an opinion. Um, so wow. a nutritional fact of the three macronutrients, there is one that we have no requirement for whatsoever. And that, of course, is carbohydrate. Um, there are essential fats. We die if we don't eat them. There are essential proteins. We die if we don't get them or we become very seriously ill before we die. There are no essential carbohydrates whatsoever. So hmm. if you and I at not one single carbohydrate. I mean, Sean Baker shows this. If you eat not one single carbohydrate between now and the day that you die, nothing untoward is going to happen. In fact, you'll probably <laughs> be a lot healthier than the people eating 400 grams a day. So once you've got that established fact, we have no requirement for carbohydrate whatsoever. 
all fiber is carbohydrate. Fiber is a subset of carbohydrate. Therefore, we have no requirement for fiber whatsoever. And that is just a nutritional fact. So then the question no evidence. becomes... No, there's no evidence that we need fiber to keep our bowels moving and all that. that that's a slightly different thing. We, the, okay. it's, it's a nutritional fact that we do not need fiber. Mm -hmm. that, that is just a fact. It's like saying we do need oxygen. We don't need fiber. They're just facts. The next question is the one that you've just gone to, which is, but is it good for us? Um, and, and that's then the only pertinent question. We don't need it, but can it be of any benefit? Um, and I just don't see it. I mean, that's when you go back to the evidence pyramid and the evidence pyramid would say, um, are there any meta-analyses and systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials that have looked at fiber versus no fiber? And there just aren't that many that have been done. So there's one really big hmm. randomized controlled trial. There's only one that's what we would call long enough and large enough, um, which was the one done as part of the DART study. And so it was actually done down the road in Wales, really not that far from me, um, back in the 1970s, 80s. Um, and that found that there was no benefit whatsoever from eating fiber. And again, there might have been slight downsides, but it wasn't reaching statistical significance. So they kind of didn't go into it any further. But there is just no trial evidence that fiber is any good. So where does all the evidence come from where they say, oh, you know, fiber is really great for you? It's all back to these population studies. So mm. what they say is the population studies show that fiber is good for you. Now, what the population studies show is that people who eat fiber tend to be healthier. It doesn't mean that the fiber caused it. So have in your mind now the typical family that eats lots of fiber. So let's say they're having quinoa and um, brown rice, whatever. Brown rice and mung beans and lentils and spices and herbs and all the rest of it. And maybe Jerusalem artichokes and flax seeds and all these expensive posh kind of things. So you've got the image now of this family and they're very affluent and they're very healthy and they're very slim and they do exercise and they've got a nice income and they've got a nice lifestyle and they just happen to eat a lot of fiber and then contrast that with the family that just can't afford all of those good things. So they might be eating McDonald's every day because it's cheaper to get the calories that they need from McDonald's and they don't do any exercise and they're probably very obese and they probably have other healthcare issues. So you've got in your mind two completely different looking people, two completely different looking families. One of them just happens to eat a lot of fiber. So they say, oh, look, the fiber is associated with good health but it didn't cause the good health. You are describing a completely different person. And that's where the population studies go wrong with fiber. Population studies. And there's there's quite a bit of uh, talk in the natural world, as you probably know, about how it's really important to, to eliminate, go to the bathroom, poop two or three, four times a day. You know, the more you do, the better it is. But I found that when I don't eat fiber, you just don't have to. I mean, you just don't have to. It's just crazy, you know. It's like whatever you put in has to come out. To if come you put out, less right. in, there's less to come out. <laughs> That's right. It, it's as simple as that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, I know people that you know they're doing everything they can, so they do poop three times a day because they feel like this is what they have to do. You know. I 
I just I don't get that. I mean, eat, eat real food and then your body's going to sort it out the way that it does, but don't... <laughs> sort it out. I like that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the fiber, when they're telling us to have 30 grams of fiber a day, when you look at how you get that, of course, the easiest way to get that is to get a high fiber cereal. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're 10 grams just at breakfast. You're a third of the way there. That's why this message is put out, because the cereal companies want you to be eating their all brand, their fruit and fiber, their high fiber cereals that are, you know, uh-huh. quite frankly, just mi- mixes of grains and high sugar. They have to put a lot of sugar in because the brand tastes so disgusting. They've got to make it palatable. And then they add the nutrients that you would find naturally if you had ex- eggs for breakfast. So they put in folate and iron and B vitamins and all the rest of it. So just don't have all that processed rubbish. Just have an egg instead or a few eggs and some mm. yogurt. That's all you need. Eggs are good food, isn't it? Isn't egg a yeah. good food? Yeah. Really yeah. good? Really good? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Does it matter how you cook it? Soft boiled, scrambled, fried, hard no. boiled, whatever. No, not really. As long as you eat the yolk. Don't do any of this Los Angeles white egg omelette kind of nonsense. You've got to eat the yolk. That's the that's where all the nutrients are. In the yolk. What if you do the yolk yeah. without the white? Is that a Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, the whites, the the whites not bringing much to the table. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to waste the egg whites, obviously, because food is valuable and expensive. But some people would put, say, the egg yolk in mayonnaise, and then they'd use the egg white for um, a sort of topping for a a dish or something. That's great. That's using up the whole the whole egg Mm -hmm. just in different Mm -hmm. different meals. You, You mentioned this idea when you eat an apple, you get so many grams of sugar, which messes up the four grams of glucose. So what happens when you eat, um, say, a, a pasta, a brown rice pasta, oh, or right. wheat pasta, or um, um, a brown rice, or white rice? What happens to the blood sugar in comparison oh, to insane. what the apple does? What does it yeah. do? A lot? Oh, it's insane. I mean, for, for some people, a normal portion of rice or pasta will easily deliver 75-100 grams of carbohydrate. Yeah, but how much and sugar in that? Yeah, yeah so most... If, if Sugar, remember that... I mean, there are different sugars. So glucose right. is a sugar, fructose is a sugar, galactose is a, is a sugar. Those are our single sugars. Um, so the main sugar in pasta and rice is glucose. Um, there will still be a bit of fructose, but it will mainly be glucose. Um, and that's the one that goes into the bloodstream. So, you know, you have a big portion of pasta. If you go out to one of these pasta restaurants, you might be whacking in even more than 100 grams of, of carbohydrate and glucose. And the, and the body wanted four grams. And you've just put in 25 times the amount that it's trying to hold. Um, and at the wow. time you walked in, you, you, when you walked into the restaurant, you were in the right range. If not, you would have been feeling hypoglycemic. You would have been feeling quite lightheaded and, you know, a bit of shaky hands and all the rest of it. So chances are when you walked into the restaurant, you were in the, the normal range. And then you go and put in 25 times the glucose level that the body wants in the bloodstream. And the body just goes into meltdown. It's, what does it's it just do? Get... It just creates the insulin and trying to balance yeah. things out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just keeps trying to take the glucose out of the bloodstream. And let's say you're chatting, so you get some glucose in, and then, you know, you, you spend about 20 minutes eating the pasta dish. You know, most people wolf it down. But if you put it in over a long period of time, you're just continually putting in, here's another 10 grams, another 10 grams. You know, the body's like, whoa, more to get out, whoa, more to get out. <laughs> and you're just releasing insulin the whole time. 
And of course, you know, when I started looking into things like obesity, one of the things I was fascinated by is why do people overeat when they don't want to be overeating? You know, everyone, yeah, right. if it was just as simple as eat less and do more, everyone would be slim. So it's clearly not that simple. If your body gets to the point, and a lot of bodies do, that you over-respond, you know, and your, your, your body is just eating so much um, carbohydrate that your body can't quite get it back to that perfect four gram there or thereabouts range, mm -hmm. quite often it can dip down below the four grams. So it can actually send you into a hypoglycemic state. And then you will crave carbohydrate to get back into that normal range. So this is why when I say to people, do you find that if you start eating confectionery, you can't stop? And they'll go, yeah, because that first confectionery bar, the, you know, the Mars bar or the Snickers or something shot your glucose up. The, the body had to release the insulin to get your glucose back to normal. Let's say it released just a little bit, tiny fraction too much. Your glucose level has then gone below where your body wants it to be. And then you are hypoglycemic. You are shaky hands, low blood glucose. You're craving sugar. That's when you want another the chocolate bar and then you have another chocolate bar and you just start going through that cycle all over again mm. and that's one of the main reasons i mean there are a number of reasons why physical reasons why people crave food and overeat but i think that's that's a major one hypoglycemia and there seems to be some kind of a psychological hit on a carb like it's almost like you crave it because of a comfort kind of a thing or something yeah. you know what i mean something like eh, yeah if i just have a carb i'm just gonna feel better or something but it's really not true is it we're just maybe wanting to relax more or something i don't i'm not sure they i mean they might have things like dopamine serotonin mm -hmm. um i think just the sugar high is actually quite addictive because when uh. you have when you have a, a chocolate bar um, it kind of gives you that hit that caffeine does. So you actually get a real stimulus and you sort of feel for about half an hour that you could really tackle your to-do list and, you know, sort of take on the world. But that doesn't last very long because your body is immediately trying to get that glucose out of the system. And then you find you get this sugar crash and you feel less able to work and can't concentrate because your brain is just all messed up with the sugar going high and then the sugar going low. So people think it will help them work and it won't. It, the best way to work is to keep your blood glucose level as even as you possibly mm. can, um, which is why people who do carnivore or keto report finding that they work really effectively because you're in a really steady glucose oh, I, state. I've noticed that. I mean, time. when I was eating lots of carbs and pasta and mm. stuff at night and rice, you know, I, I'd be worthless after an hour after I ate. Yeah, I, I just couldn't do much of anything except, you know, zone out and with a film or something. But now, <laughs> yeah. just doing more meat and animal and, and eggs, and um, I can work on my screenplays at night till midnight, and I just, whew, I'm good. So, what is it telling us? Is that like Patrick's blood sugar is not bouncing all over the place now yeah. without yeah. all the carbs? Yeah. It tells you a number on? of things. Yeah, hmm. one thing it's telling you is, is that you've got stable blood glucose levels. Stable. You've got stable, yeah, they're, they're within that narrow band. They're around the four grams uh -huh. um, and they're staying happily there. You're not doing anything to mess them up. And that is going to really help. Help you just feel solid. Feel yeah. solid and good and productive. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it helps mind and mood. And the hmm. other thing that's going on, if you're eating a very low carb 
diet at the moment so a keto diet or a carnivore diet you're fueling on fat and ketones rather than fueling on carbohydrates so your body is actually switched into a different fueling system um, you're like a hybrid and instead of you know running on electric you've just now you know run to going on diesel or something um, but you're fueling on something that the body is very happy to fuel on and of course you can fuel far more indefinitely on fat and ketones than you can on carbohydrate because um, we only ever store about 1400 calories of carbohydrate at any one time so if you want to run your whole day on carbohydrate at some point in the day unless you put more carbohydrate in you're going to run out of carbohydrate but not um, fat fat is a slow burner fat fat is a slow burner i mean you, you're going to eat fat because you're carnivore let's say you did some fasting and you're very lean so you're going to use up your dietary fat quite quickly you're not going to have any stored glucose because you haven't been eating carbohydrate over the recent days um incredible as it seems even um let's take a marathon runner like um paula radcliffe who's the british marathon runner who still holds the world record for the marathon she'll run it in about two hours 26 miles Ooh. she's she's only about 100 pounds she, she's certainly no more than 110 pounds now for a woman to have very low body fat you're you're still looking at about 12 to 14 percent body fat so she's still got 12 to 14 pounds of fat on her body um that if she just didn't eat for a couple of days she can still access all of those calories but at any one time, she's probably only got 1,400 calories worth of carbohydrate. But she could have 30,000 calories worth of fat. Hmm. And that's the difference. It's the, it's the fuel that we don't run out of. If the, so that's why when you do more fat, uh, meat fat, or um, you, you can go longer in between meals, right? I find that yeah. I just don't get hungry as yeah. much as I used to. It's crazy. It's like, yeah, yeah. So do you think that it's necessary if you're going to do more meat uh, that you have extra fat, like actually get fat from the butcher or bacon or other things to add to it? No, I, I, I know. I say eat the food as it comes. Okay. So again, my number one principle is eat real food. Just um, as it comes. So if it, yes. If you're having a pork chop, it comes with fat on the yeah. side. If you're having a steak, it comes with fat. Um, don't then go and eat the other person's fat because they've left theirs. <laughs> um, unless unless you don't have a weight problem and you actually need it for the energy and then it's fine mm -hmm. um, but you know I find that that um, working in the weight loss field um, <clears throat> a lot of people when they embrace keto they think they have to go and add butter to their steak so I'll be sat at conferences and I'm I don't know 105 pounds or something and I'll be sat next to someone who's 300 pounds and we've both been served the same meal and it might be lamb and some green vegetables and I'm eating my lamb and green vegetables and they're putting butter on theirs and it's like you're 300 pounds you're telling me you want to lose weight why are you adding butter to the meal that we've both been served you don't need it you don't need you know you you want your body to fuel on your body fat not to fuel on that butter that you've just put in your mouth wow well, yeah but isn't it well oh but so it's different the butter is a different fat than the ribeye fat Right? No. no. Um, <clears throat> again, if, if the person sat next to me who's trying to lose weight, if let's say a low fat person had cut the fat off their ribeye and left it on the plate and the, and the keto person said, oh, can I have your meat fat? It's like, why are you adding extra fat? You've had a fatty piece of meat. 
you've had a perfectly decent meal you're trying to lose weight if you're trying to lose weight you know a lot of people will will take um their ketone measurement and say oh great i'm in ketosis it's like so are you burning dietary fat or are you burning body fat because if you're trying to lose weight you want to be burning body fat hmm, and they right. don't think about it hmm. so if you people mistake with keto because the ratios in keto are very low carb let's say about five percent carb 15 percent protein 80 percent fat they think they need to eat the fat to get up to 80 percent you don't need to add the fat you need to take away the carbohydrate and just don't go it, mad on protein take it away yeah. so they, they just get it the wrong way around people who are adding fat for the sake of it I've done a, a post on this on my site. So if you put in LCHF and butter, it brings up this post on my site. And I got okay. in, you know, the low carb, high fat community were really not happy with me. But it's like, I don't care. I'm saying it because I'm, I'm not happy with what you're doing to people who are trying to lose weight. You're telling them to add butter and butter will make your pants fall down and all this kind of misinformation. Mm. And I've got women who are still 300 pounds or men who are still 300 pounds crying and desperately upset because keto isn't working for them and keto should work for them it's just you're telling them to do it wrong ah, so get your ratios by cutting carbohydrate by not overdoing protein don't do it by adding fat fat it's just not going to help if you want to lose weight you've got to burn your body fat not dietary fat and if we what about i'm 125 and i'm starting to lift weights i'd like to gain a little weight what do i what would i do to gain muscle muscles Okay, so you can't, um, all, all you can do is build your muscles. You can't oh, you can add a muscle that, muscle that isn't there. So you've so got a certain amount it. of muscle. Yeah, so, you know, we've all got muscles in, in arms and on stomach. You know, we've got muscles all over the bodies. You know, what, what we can do by doing weights is, is to sort of build them up and, and make them look more impressive. Right. Um, so you, you can't actually add add any muscle you can add bulk and i do know you know young um boys particularly want to add bulk which they then think you know if you've just got generally a bigger frame and then you start adding the muscles onto that frame you are going to look more bulky so I, mm. I can understand what they're doing um best way for me to gain weight gain bulk is actually to mix your fats and carbs so back to that rule of nature will separate them if you mix them, that's the best way in my view to gain weight. So if you have the baked potato with butter or cheese, if you have rice with fatty lamb, if you have steak with chips or with potatoes, if you keep mixing your fats and carbs, that's the best way to gain weight. It'll gain weight that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and conversely, um, if you want to lose weight, don't mix your fats and carbs. And then if you do that though, you have to deal with the imbalance in the blood sugar that you're gonna feel. It's just yes. part of the game, right? It's yeah. just one, one of those things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting yeah. email. KMF writes, what about all the studies tying heart disease and cancer to dairy and meat consumption? But they, I mean, th this is when we're into the population studies. The population um, and they, studies. They, yeah, and they just, th th so they don't add up. So again, you could go on my site and look at some of the population studies where I've looked at this, where there's, you know, they say there's an association between red meat and heart disease. And what they've actually found is an association between affluence and heart disease. Hmm. But people who are affluent can afford more red meat. Um, or they found an association because in the US you call unprocessed red meat burgers you put burgers in the unprocessed red meat category now to me a burger is a processed meat um, so again you have to separate out your real meat from your processed meat and if somebody is eating processed meat what else are they eating they're eating the bun they're eating the tomato ketchup they're eating the fries but they'll just blame the red meat because that suits the narrative 
So, you know, if you if you want to go back to um, indigenous communities that are eating red meat as part of their diet or look at Sean Baker's diet, Sean Baker is not worried about cancer or heart disease because he's eating real unprocessed red meat and he's not eating all the other junk that goes with it. And they don't allow for that in the studies. They don't allow for the fizzy mm. drinks and the milkshakes and the ice creams and the burger buns and the ketchup and all the other things that go with that processed red meat and the dairy might be milkshakes it might be ice cream it's not kefir that's and because it's a population study and not a controlled exactly um, exactly exactly yeah, if, if you want to do the trial then you do the trial where you say right there's ten thousand people and give them red meat every day and keep every other element of the diet the same and there's ten thousand people and give them impossible burger every day and keep everything else in the diet the same and follow them over the next 10 years and see who develops heart disease and who develops cancer and i would not be worried about the people eating whole red meat beef lamb um pork and, and there's actually more and more studies from reputable kind of a medical, more classical me medical industrial complex people that are saying not demonizing the red meat so much. I've seen a few of these studies. So there are some people that are kind of trying to get more good information out there. Hmm. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, I'm surprised that the, the industry doesn't do more about this, to be quite honest. I mean, I won't work for any industry. I'm truly independent. Um, but given that the cereal industry is putting nonsense out there um, and processed food industry is, you know, the, the vegetable oil industry is sponsoring vegetable oils are marvellous and don't eat saturated fat. Given that they're doing all of that, I'm wondering why the meat industry and the dairy industry don't do a lot more than they do. Sure, um, they could, right? Def yeah. Defend it. You know, you have got a really defendable product. You have got a whole food, natural product with a fantastic array of protein, essential fats, vitamins and minerals. Why are you not shouting this from the rooftop you know i have this debate in wales we have welsh lamb and welsh beef and i often feel i do more to promote welsh lamb and welsh beef <laughs> than, you guys than, do. Your, than your organizations and and that's your job your job is to promote yeah. welsh meat and welsh beef and it's not my job to do that but i do a better job than you guys do and like why mm. is it left to me to yeah defend real food talking of which i'm gonna to have to go and get some real food soon because yeah, yeah. we're off so out this one evening more email. this is cecilia she says what about honey does your guest think honey is a good food no honey is just sugar with it's a little a bit of water added it's it's sugar so honey sucrose is 100 percent sugar honey is about 87 percent sugar so it's sugar and a little bit of water so sugar. if you added water to the sugar bowl you would make it sticky like honey that, that's the only difference it's sugar with water but it's it's quite good for wounds there's some research that's been going on at a university near me um, that if you've got some infected wounds put in manuka honey directly on the wound um, there is some good evidence for that that it's going to be beneficial um, but not for putting it in your mouth it's just sugar and finally you mentioned berries so you and other people believe that if you're going to do some fruit these berries blueberries or raspberries they're the best kind of fruit to have yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Low, lower lower sugar fruits yeah i'm being called okay. <laughs> yeah i know you're gonna go out to eat so thank room. you zoe harcomb for being here phd and it's uh, zoeharcomb.com and you can sign up and get yourself a a weekly uh little email too thanks for coming on the show i really enjoyed oh, it oh thanks thank so you. much for having me we can always do it again so yeah um, let's do it sometime it we'll just dig into all kinds of geeky things all right my exactly. dear you take care of yourself 
Thank, Thank you. you and you. Have a good Bye day. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. She's great, huh? Yeah, we just like little real geeks, man, and want to do this stuff. It's kind of fun. Well, um, let's see. I'm kind of kind of getting hungry. I think what we're going to do is we're going to bring our guest on that we interviewed yesterday uh, in 15 minutes. Let's do it at 11.30. We were going to do noon, but hey, uh, I mean, why wait? Uh, he's uh, Dr. Mark Bailey, and uh, I think you're going to find him fascinating. We interviewed him uh, yesterday afternoon, and uh, you listen to him, and you'll probably never, ever, 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 believe in a germ again I mean there are people out there that are, they're just killing it here they're just knocking this down and and uh, there's going to be a time when there's going to be a lot more people that know that this whole germ thing is just made up and these are geeks man these are real scientists that are digging in writing four and five hundred page papers taking things into court and proving that the whole germ theory is just made up now, you can believe it if you want, but you know, there's just a lot of evidence that says it ain't, it's, this ain't so. As Mark Twain said, it's not what we don't know that's a problem, it's what we know that just ain't so. And just trust me when I tell you, once you would ever get to the point, I'm pre-selling the show here, once you would ever get to the point, and you really get it on a deep level, that there's nothing out there that you can catch from anybody else or in the air that'll harm you, your life will change. Because there's nothing to worry about. Can't catch anything. Okay, kids, we'll see you in 15 minutes with Dr. Mark Bailey. Uh, thanks for your ongoing support. And uh, I love you all very much. You're doing great. Thank you. Bye. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is one. RadioNetwork.com.